I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Um, there's only one thing uh, which isn't a great idea um, about the way that these events are arranged and that is that the authors get to spend time downstairs and what passes for a green room but is actually the philosophy section uh, of the bookshop um, and so one gets to contemplate in short, short time uh, just what book you might be reading rather than the one you're just about to read and so for your delectation I had to inform you quickly that what I would be reading uh, and indeed some, in some very uh, frightening senses uh, our reading uh, is Queer Fish, Christian Unreason from Darwin to Derrida. Um, it's a really lovely book, by the way. I mean, I can't recommend it highly enough, but it kept me going down there as I was preparing myself to come up. I don't want to give a vast uh, synopsis of what uh, Be Near Me, my new novel, uh, covers, but um, I'm going to read from somewhere in the middle, and uh, I just wanted to say that, uh, just to give you a bit of context for it, that um, it's set in 2003, uh, during the early stages of the invasion in Iraq. Um, it's set in Scotland in a small parish called Dulgarnock, um, where a priest, Father David Anderton, tips up. Um, he was born in Edinburgh. He's a Scottish um, mother, but he's very much taken to be English by the locals in Dulgarnock. Um, it's fair to say that things don't go entirely well for him in this town. Just by way of preface, I mean, I grew up reading the kinds of book that I hoped ultimately that I'd be able to, if only in the most small and modest way, try to write myself. Um, I'll never forget the argument between uh, Henry James, I think, and Arnold Bennett about whether um, the novel could be political and social or could it only be aesthetic. And I remember hoping then, and I hope still, that it can be to some extent both. I feel, speaking for myself, that this is the novel where I try to get closest to that hope. Um, and I hope you enjoy the part that I'm going to read to you. All you need to know, really, uh, so that you don't fall behind here, is that Mrs. Poole, who comes up in this section, um, is the priest's housekeeper uh, in the chapel house in Dogarnock. I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to, we can have a conversation and take questions. And then. Yes. 
yes. Mrs. Poole once told me something one couldn't forget. She was making her bed at home one day and found a piece of paper under the mattress, dug in deep beyond the valance on her own side. The paper had writing on it, a solitary line across the middle of the page. She said the ink was faded and the writing was in Jack, her husband's hand. He always wrote in capitals, and he used these poor pens that come from the betting shop. It made her wince to remember it, but the words were very clear that day. I don't love you anymore. She sat on the edge of the bed, she said, for what seemed like hours, with a piece of paper on her lap in the house looking at her. She stared at it until her vision began to go in and out, and then, standing at the window in what she called a state of shock, she wondered how long she had slept on that terrible message and why he had put it there. To make the nights more bearable for himself, to send a message through the sleeping hours to a person he couldn't speak to with honesty. Was he drunk? She told me she stayed in the bedroom considering all these things, and others too, before finally asking herself whether the great boldness of his feeling might not have, in fact, faded with the ink. Her story came back to me one morning in the rectory when she handed me a letter. It said, Cross House Hospital, across the top. I can't recall the letter's exact words, though I know it was badly written. It said something about steroids not performing as expected, about genetic factors, something with regard to the growth of cells, and the word purpura, which stuck in my mind because of its oddness and beauty. She said the letter explained what the consultant had said to her. I mean, I haven't told Jack, said Mrs. Poole. God forgive me, but I can't tell him. I don't want sympathy, and he'll just give me sympathy. That's what he does. That's always what he does. That's all he has. I don't want that. Do you know what I mean, Father? Yes, I said. I think I do know. She had held on to the letter for a number of weeks, and now her hand was shaking as she took it back from me and wiped her eyes. Over her shoulder, through the landing window, the oak trees were showing large green leaves, and early morning appeared to broaden over the fences. She had breast cancer and something in her kidney. She spoke of an operation of convalescence and time off work. The way she spoke brought to mind an instant panorama of snow-topped chalets and sanitaria. I thought of a bald-headed Nijinsky practicing his famous entrechat in the alpine evenings. I mean, they're trying things, said Mrs. Poole, but these drugs don't do anything. You'll need peace and quiet, Mrs. Poole, I said. She looked puzzled and seemed to struggle for a moment to find her bearings at the foot of the stairs. Give it time, I said. I knew then it meant nothing to say such things, but the right words escaped me. I looked down at my rucksack by the door and was overwhelmed for a moment by the smell of furniture polish. Life's short, she said. Come on, Mrs. Poole. It's been coming to a head for these last three months, she said, and God knows where I'm headed now. The school bus was beeping outside 
I asked her if she would mind saying a prayer there, and she said she would. She would like that. So I dipped a hand into the water font, and we sat on the stairs and said three Hail Marys. We stood back up, and I could see a person wearing a baseball cap through the frosted glass of the porch door. I hugged her and said that God would find a way, and her shoulders softened as I placed it under my chin, a smell of figs and almonds rising from the wool of her jumper. That's just as good as a prayer, she said. It never escaped me that Mrs. Poole considered my general tactility to be another aspect of my falseness, and it seemed now, when I look back, that she'd reproached herself for responding to it. I believe she observed the impossibility of sexual interest in my part, but we each found it hard not to display sometimes the part, not to play sometimes the parts of man and wife, even if only for vivid moments engraved more with pain than with pleasure. Only once that year did I stop inside my own thoughts to consider her differently. We had gone to Glasgow to buy chairs from one of those superstores, you know, and we passed through the aisles on either side of a massive trolley, stopping to look at lamps and bookshelves and little bedrooms with bunk beds that accused us with their multicoloured pillows. They have such nice things nowadays, Father, she said. For a brief moment that day, I had thought of the children we might have made together and the father I might have become. I saw myself lifting a child up to the top tier of that plywood bunk bed. I saw myself pulling at the duvet, kissing the child, and Mrs. Poole standing at the door with a mug of tea in her hand and the child's trousers under her arm. How absurd. It's the only time I have ever thought of fatherhood, you know. I believe it was the impossible colours and the atmosphere in Ikea. It kindled a notion of another life, a life of domestic contentment and heart-shaped lights. It must have touched Mrs. Poole too, because we went downstairs to a lunch of meatballs and chips and she told me the story of her only son. Well, the thing, the thing is, he, he lives with my sister Irene, she said. I don't know if that was the right decision, but it was the decision that I made at the time, okay? I mean, that's what I thought was the best thing at the time. He's a good-looking boy, you know. He's a good-looking boy, Father. That's the thing. Anybody would say that. If they looked at him, I mean, that's what they would say. I don't see him that much myself. I mean, hardly ever. He has these three cousins, and he calls them his brothers. He does that. He calls them that. And Irene, she's good to him. But why? Simple. Simple, she said. I couldn't bear to bring him up with his father the way he is. I mean, you just couldn't do that. The drink and everything. That was the only reason. That's a big enough reason. It is to me anyhow. Jack talks like he loves families. Men do that, you know. He only likes them at a distance. He doesn't actually know how to be in a family. So that was it. I wasn't having that wee boy suffer for all that stuff. A father who didn't know how to be a father, a family full of disappointment and blame. I was not having that for him, you see. So my sister took him. I closed my hand over Mrs. Poole's and she let it rest there for a second, moving her fingers in compliance. In life, she said, you've just got to do what you can to improve the situation, father. 
She pushed the lunch plate away from her that day. She bent into her shopping bag to examine a packet of nightlights she had bought and never mentioned her son again. The young people were banging on the rectory door. Hurry the fuck up, shouted Mark. Really, said Mrs. Poole. You shouldn't let those youngsters speak to you like that, Father, around you. I mean, it's not right. I opened the door and Mark was smiling amid all his stripes and hoods. Morning all, he said, tipping his cap with a stick of lip balm. His appearance was always very sudden, Mark. As soon as he presented himself, all the oxygen seemed to be swallowed into the vacuum he created. I could feel Mrs. Poole becoming rattled at my side. I hope you crowd are going to behave yourselves today, she said. It's a treat, Mark McNulty, that's what it is, that's what you call this, a treat. Do you realise that yourself? Father David is taking time out of his own work to give you all a nice time. Oh, definitely, Mrs. P, a day after school and everything, aye. It's Mrs. Poole to you. Ah, whatever. Okay, she said, just mind yourselves. Lisa Nolan clapped her hands as we passed air and began singing in that show-off, a reaction-dependent way of hers. All the ladies in the house, yeah, yeah, all the ladies in the house, give it loads. What are you talking about, Lisa? I'm singing my thing, Papa, she said, laughing. All the babies go crazy when I get my milkshake on. You do talk some absolute rubbish, I said. She's the money, said Mark. Too right, nigger, she said. All the ladies in the house. On the way to Girvan to pick up the boat for Ailsa Craig, I tried to read a book at the back of the bus while the four youngsters, Mark, Lisa, a boy called Colin and a girl with black nail varnish, Michelle, talked about chemist shops and their contents, each of them assuming I wasn't listening or couldn't understand what they were talking about. But I kept my head down and took in every word. Don't be daft, you, said Mark. They keep them in the drawers, right? They're in the drawers in that chemist. Just look with your eyes, right? You have to ken what you're looking for. Diazepam under D, right? D. See that? Always in a big grey plastic jar. Look with your eyes. That's what people do with their eyes. Same as Valium, said Colin. Yellow butt, said Mark. They're yellow. That's the thing. Watch out for your colours. Keep your eyes open. The Xanax come in packets. Lisa was swigging from her can. They're called roaches, she said. Lit on a joint? Collins asked. No, you fucking idiot, said Mark. You're a fucking tube. Listen to what I'm saying. That's the name of the firm that makes them roaches, the big big factory up there in Dorai. Tell him about Finos, said Lisa. I saw him rolling his eyes, indicating to her to keep her voice down. Fino Barbaton, he whispered. You listen to me? Watch my lips. Phenobarbiton. Make sure you get the 60 milligrams right and try for naps. N-A-P-P-S. That's the stuff, right? That's the, what's the right name? Don't know, said Lisa. Morphine something. Or look on the shelf, said Mark. Just have a look on the shelf. Try and find codeine, phosphate, uh, uh, syrup. Aye, it's mad. It's totally mad. Comes in a litre bottle. Keep your eyes open. Lisa laughed towards the ceiling of the bus and put her hand over her mouth. Aye, and watch for Ritalin. That's the thing. Aye, 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 Ritalin. 
She said, it's as good as E, right? But speedier, much, much speedier. But I mean, it's as good as E. I'm telling you that. Just watch out for that. Watch. Sometimes it's in a locked drawer, though. The janitor turned the radio down and his eyes appeared in the rear view mirror. What's all the whispering for? We're not doing nothing, said Lisa. Nothing, she added. You better not start any of your carry-on today, he said. I know what you two are like. Okay, I've got your number. I know what it's like with you two. If there's any carry-on during this trip, I've told Father David here, I've said, just call me and I'll come back up there and take you to the school. Hope you're a good swimmer, said Mark. The giants are craned round from the wheel and bared his teeth. I'm warning you, McNulty. I'm telling you. This is supposed to be a nice day. A nice day. Do you know what that is? Any crap for you and you're in deep trouble. All right said Mark. Keep your wig on. He turned his amateur smile on me at the back of the bus. He's always like that, Father. We're going to have a good day out, aren't we? That's the intention, I said, putting the book down. You reckon you're a bunch of gangsters, do you? Oh, I see. We'll see how brave you are when you're halfway across the sea. Ha, up shit Craig without a paddle, said Lisa. Language. I said. We began our descent to Girvan Harbour and could see the rock standing out there at the centre of the morning like a golden bell, half submerged in the waters of the Irish Sea. It looks much bigger from here, said Mark. A mile out from the harbour, the boat seemed to glide forward in the breeze and Mark was leaning over the side, trailing a finger in the green water. Careful. I said. The boat could suddenly tip and we don't want to lose you just yet, Mark. Let him go, Michelle said. He'll just sink to the bottom like a big stain, like a big stain, or nobody will ever miss him. No, he'll float like a McNugget, a chicken McNugget, said Lisa. She leaned against the rope and shaded her eyes. She pointed downwards. Feather, she said. Are there many boats down there? I mean, wrecks. Shipwrecks in that down there. I mean, is there? Thousands, I said. These coastal waters are rough in the wintertime. I mean, we, we couldn't cross at this point. I mean, the waves would come right over the boat. That's the thing. And yeah, you wouldn't be smiling then. Oh, aye, so it's like a big... What, a big graveyard or something down there? Said Mark. Down there? He stabbed his finger through the surface. Just a graveyard of old ships and bones and crap like that? Sadly, yes, I said. Going back to before the age of improvement, when coal ships travelled these lanes, I think you'll find merchant ships bound for the East Indies. Man, smugglers. Indeed, smugglers... I mean, this coast was bad for smugglers two or three hundred years ago. What? Drugs? Said Mark. Oh, brandy more like. Oh, cool, cool. The journey to the Craig was ten miles, but each mile brought slow-forming changes in light and perspective. It felt as if the boat was moving through the grades of perspective itself. The red roofs at Girvan now low on the horizon and the rock beginning to crowd our vision moment by moment until the senses themselves were enlarged 
It's like traveling inside a painting. That's right. Except we're real, said Lisa. Aye, keeping it real, said Mark. An hour seemed to go in perfect peace. The skipper moving the boat over the sea and the unknown graves below. The young people talking their reams of nonsense, pure nonsense, opening their smiling faces into the breeze. It must have been mad, but, said Mark eventually. I mean, it must have been, but really, it must have been mad. I mean, in Vietnam, or like the Falklands or something like that. I mean, going out in a boat knowing people you're going to start shooting at you any minute, just right in there. I mean, totally mental. You go out there in the boat, next minute there's bullets flying all your head. It's totally mad. And you'd have like a machine gun yourself rigged up and you'd be giving it da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da every fucker. Let's start up about wars now, Mark, I said. Aye, the Bay of Tonkin, I read it in a book. I got a book in the library. That's right, Tonkin, it said. Aye, or oh, uh, San Carlos Bay. And at least I heard about that. That's what, well, it says it in the book. Gunners giving it da 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 Every fucker, every fucker falling about the place. Argies falling over the place, getting theirs, getting theirs. Dumb fucks, imagine it, but dead Argies everywhere floating in the water. Magic. You weren't even born, Mark, I said. I've read about it. I have. I've read about it. In the book. Right? I mean, it was totally mad. Uh, it was. The troops sorted them right out, by the way, down there. The poor penguins, said Lisa. Mr. Harrison, history. He did tell us. The penguins, I mean, hunters, they get blue to bits, Mark. You don't pay attention to half the things. Can I grab you? said Mark. You always get casualties in war. That's the thing about wars and that. People die, Lisa. Well, penguins, I mean, as well. Who gives a fuck about penguins? Mark, people did die, I said. People die in war. But it's cool. I mean, I think it's cool. I mean, if you pay attention to history, I mean, I really like things that happened before. I mean, I read all their books. I'm always in the library, sometimes at playtime. Everything. I mean, thing is, I know people die, Father, right? I'm not daft. But um, you've got to fucking, sorry, you've got to sort out all the fucking crappy dictators and all that. Do you know what I mean? All that stuff. I mean, that's how it should be. It's terrible business. Mark, are you listening to me? It's a terrible business. War. Look at me. Aye, necessary though, said Mark. Sometimes necessary, I said. The others were taking in the immediate world around the boat, the volumes of water in the diminishing land behind our backs. Lisa was sitting on the deck in bare feet and was busy pressing the buttons on her phone. When I was about your age, Mark, I, I wouldn't have agreed with you. I have to say that. I mean, in those days, it was the fashion to hate all wars. I mean, more than the fashion. Uh, we really believed it, and it seemed to us the government was corrupt. That's how young people used to think. Now you're all, all much more gung-ho than any government. But you like it yourself, said Mark. I've heard you. You're just as bad about this. Iraq, you know that? There are people who notice the power of themselves in any conversation. 
They won't be put down, and their steady gaze can come to bear one's nerves and cancel one's resolve. Mark was like that. I don't know if I've ever seen it in anyone so young before, or so small-minded. Though there comes a point in life when all young people seem capable of knowing things one could never fathom. Perhaps his mother had adored him too much, for Mark behaved as if the world was invented just for him, and his face was serene enough to convince anyone who looked at him that things would be all right if one stuck close to him. I think in our hearts we believe that beauty is a very sincere kind of knowledge. We fall for the wisdom of beautiful lips, no matter what they're capable of saying. Mark knew it. He knew it the way a bird might know where to fly in winter, that kind of knowledge. He might have known nothing else, but he knew people needed the youthful, vivid certainty of his presence, and it didn't matter to him then, as it would one day, surely, that his fantastic power was set to fade into nothing. We noticed when he opened his eyes and shaded them from the sun to look at us, because they brought something of the sun down with them to include us, to let us share in his own warm rays of assurance. You like it, Father, he said. Wars, I've heard you saying stuff. I mean, I've heard it myself. Like, half the things you say, I've heard them. I mean, it's us taking a stand against evil, right? I mean, that's what it is. No, I mean, peace, that's fine in that, but this, I mean, we need to fight, don't we? I mean, you need to take a stand. To some extent, perhaps, I said, but not always, Mark. It's like football, right? Said Mark. You've got to have your team. I mean, you've just got to, Father, right? You've got to decide and you've just got to stick to it. You've got to have your team. You want them to win, right? Listen to me. I'm telling you, I know much more about this than you do. You don't support football, but I'm telling you, you've got to have your team. You want them to win more than anything. That's the thing. You get to the stage, you do anything for your team. Anything. Me, I'd do anything for Celtic. I'm telling you. Jellyfish floated past the boat, opening and closing. Everyone seemed to be thinking their own thoughts when Mark broke through the silence to tell a story. Right, the night of the Liverpool game at Anfield, he said. My dad actually, he actually opened his mouth, right? He actually spoke. He did, I swear. My dad actually stood up and said something. Well, he didn't stand up very quickly, but he did. Right, I'll tell you, right? Calm down, Mark. I'll tell you. Right. My dad actually opened his mouth the night of the Anfield game, right? He's actually got nothing to say to me. He never has anything to say. He's got nothing to say to anybody. And nothing to my mother. He's never spoke to my mother. Well, he must have spoke to me. He never has recently. Uh, my mother was out selling tablet. What's that? I said. Oh, fudge. Rubbish fudge. He said. Uh, she sells it around the doors. Anyway, he pushes the sofa right into the telly, right? As soon as he's got rid of her. She doesn't like us to move the furniture anyway. He moved it. She was out selling tablet. He brought out crisps and that, sweeties and ginger he'd bought off the van. Stuff. He never does that sort of thing. And he said to me to sit down and watch the game with him. I mean, him and me. He usually hates people around him. I mean, he just hates people. He just sits in his chair and smokes. 
I could picture Mark's living room as he spoke about it. Near the beginning of my time in Dogarnock, when I first came as the parish priest, I had gone to his house. I didn't know Mark at the time, but his mother had come and she asked me to speak to her husband about his depression. She explained it had been going on for a long time and that he wouldn't have anything to do with doctors. Maybe you can get through to him, she said. It sometimes takes a priest. When I came to the house, it seemed to me Mr. McNulty didn't want a priest or anybody else. But he was polite that day. I mean, terribly overweight, sitting in the armchair. Mark talked about and saying he was fine. I'm fine. Me? I'm fine, Father. Don't worry about me. He was just going through a funny stage, he said. I remember the fire with imitation coal and a stack of videotapes, the large gold-framed photograph of a baby who sat on a furry rug and the table at the back of the sitting room crowded in the middle with sauce bottles, vinegar, a jar of beetroot. You have uh, quite a nice way with words, Father, he said to me. Are you English? Actually, I was born in Edinburgh, I said. That's my mother's city, you know. Uh, she met my father there and they got married and had me. Then we all went to live in Lancashire. I mean, that was his territory. A strange smile, same as Mark's now that I think of it, appeared between the mounds of his cheeks and he lit a cigarette. Lancashire, he said. Never been there, Lancashire, no, no, never there. Never been to that. I like Ireland. Mark's father spoke a little about his own father. He showed me some cigarette cards the old man used to collect, and he referred to his life with the sort of vague piety, I thought at the time, that we deploy when discussing the lives of people we wish we had known better. In fact, it reminded me of the way I sometimes talked myself. Oh, they say my father was a, a great character. I mean, he was a great sort, as you would say, said Mr. McNulty. An old lady, right, up the road. I mean, an old woman, as I would say myself. Just up the road from where we lived. I mean, she couldn't eat. I mean, poor old soul. She couldn't even eat her dinner. And my dad, a good man, I mean, he went up there and sat by the bed for hours, squeezing oranges into the old woman's mouth. She did. What did he do? He, he squeezed oranges into her mouth. Oh, uh, very kind, I said. Very kind of him. Aye, that was the measure of the man. That's the kind of person he was. He always had plenty of things to do about the place. He always, I mean, he kept an allotment. And what sort of father are you, Mr. McNulty? The question was coarse, but I asked it with a view to perhaps opening up the question of the man's unhappiness. He just looked at me. Did my wife ask you to ask me that question? No, not at all, Mr. Minaldi, no. No, no, no. Um, I, I would like to help you. He smiled and lit another cigarette. Doctors and priests, he said. Good men. Ah. Uh, I tried to do the odd thing with Mark Noon again, he said. It's not always easy to think of things to do with young people. You know what young people are like nowadays. You know, I mean, they've got nothing to say, but 
you know, I, I, we, we go to the swimming baths. I mean, there's a place, there's a great place at Auckland Harvey. We've been there a few times, me and him. Seagulls followed the boat, nipping in closer, tilting on the wing, as if they were listening to Mark's story like us, the story about the Liverpool game. Oh, I really wanted them to be European champions that time. The Lisbon Lions all over again, just like 1967, said Mark. My dad usually gets a few cans, just sits them by his chair. That's him planted. He'll never leave that chair. Um, but that time, um, well, never mind. I mean, he doesn't want anybody in the living room. He doesn't want anybody there, in there with him. He just drinks his cans, do you know what I'm saying? And that night he said, this is your history, Mark. That's what he said to me. He did say that, Father. I swear to God, he said it right into my face. He said, this is your history, by the way. And he made me a shandy. He did, Lisa, a big fuck-off shandy like that. I drank it myself. He did. He said to me, this is what your people fought for. Lisa and the others just nodded. They seemed to understand him. My dad and uncle cried at that game, said Lisa. They did. They cried, I mean, at the start, and they cried at the end when we won. Oh, we were a European side that night, said Mark. Half the English national team were running about in red shirts. Owen, Heskey, Gerrard. And we've never gubbed Liverpool in a European match before. And what a feeling. What a feeling among the Celtic support. You wouldn't believe it, Father. I'm, I'm telling you, you wouldn't believe it. You could see the fans giving it full pelt in the terraces. The songs, Father. The songs it was. You should have heard them. Oh, don't get me wrong. Liverpool, they have great, brilliant supporters even. Brilliant. I mean, yeah, you have to credit that. I mean, they have great, great supporters themselves. But the Celtic crowd, Jesus Christ Almighty, it was brilliant that night. Unbelievable, I'm telling you. Brilliant. Why is that? I said. Because they've had to fight their way up, said Mark. They fought to be accepted, right? No, that's true. By the way, that is it. They fought their way up. A Catholic team in Glasgow, right? Catholics, nobody... I mean, do you know what it was like? I mean, Catholic team in Glasgow and then in Scotland and then in the world, they had to get respect. They had to get respect, Father. That's the thing you need to understand. That was what it was all about. It's a community, isn't it? But that's true of Liverpool too, isn't it? I said, those people have had to fight their way up. That's what I'm saying, Father. You're not listening to me. They have brilliant supporters. I said that myself. They're great supporters. But it's just with Celtic, there's something a bit else. I mean, there's something else. And what happened at the house, I asked, when you were watching with your father? Ah. Oh. Man, right, when Thompson scored, it was a free kick, okay, right, not right, no far for the box, just right, right, it was like this. Mark motioned with his foot. Larson skipped over the ball, and Thompson blutered it, and the ball just, the wall just crumbled away, just away into nothing. I'm telling you, the wall fell apart, players jumping up and turning sideways to avoid the ball hitting them, and instead of hitting them, it fired right into the back of the net, 1-0. I was jumping up and doing, I'm no kidding, Jumping up and down, oh Jesus Christ, I thought I was going to go mad. I thought the whole thing was just going to go mad in my mind. You know, the, the ball went right into the net, right in the middle of the room, and my dad was smiling from ear to ear like that. That's awesome, said Lisa. He went to get up. My father stood up. He actually did. I mean, it's a bit of a hassle for him sometimes. I mean, he's big in that. I mean, he's fat, but he did try and get up, I'm no kidding, he stood up, he tried, 
He said, that's your Liverpool for you, son. It went right through their bloody legs. Eh, why go? Get me another beer for the French. We're going to the semi-final. We were silent for a moment around Mark. It was weird, he said. He stood up. He got up out of his chair. My dad. And he was saying all that to me. And you know, I don't think he likes me. Nonsense, I said. Of course your father likes you. It's nothing to me. I don't, uh, I don't care, right, is what I'm saying. I don't care. But what a night for Celtic that was. You've got to have your team, Father. Evidently, Mark. I looked back to see Scotland, the woods that fringed the headland and the green breast of the hills. From a position it seemed nothing could ever reach us. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. The forces back. And we passed into a strange proximity with the advancing island of Ailsa Craig. More than an island, it seemed like a testament to physical endurance, this place. This lonely rock, less than a dozen miles from the coast. It could have been the Aegean. It could have been the Bay of Bengal. But it was a golden spot in the Irish Sea. And we sat in the middle of the boat as it moved it did move into the shade. Before we reached the jetty, I asked the youngsters to stop talking and listen to our place of arrival. There was nothing around but the sound of birds. Are we, like, are we the only people here? Said Mark. Yes, Mark. We're the only ones. I think it's traditional at this point to take questions, uh, but as long as it, people who might ask questions promise not to ask me any more about football because everything in the entire universe that I know is in that passage. <laughs> I can see there are a few people here who might help me. Yeah, if uh, anyone has a question, can you wait you until the uh, microphone comes around? Thanks. Somebody who grew up in a similar, a similar background to yourself, an Irish Catholic, 
I've been reading a wee bit of the book. Now, the housekeeper, and I know hundreds of housekeepers because I have a friend who was a priest, and I often st stayed with him. And the housekeeper is often a very pious, she's often very dedicated, and but you would never hear the housekeeper talking intellectually. And this man's a sophisticated priest. He's been educated at Ampleforth, Benedictine. He comes in, he's going to be in conflict with the working class community at some stage, the working class community. But the housekeeper, I'm not saying, don't, don't be angry with me, Andrew. I bought the book for my cousin, who's uh, a teacher. Um, and myself, I've got one for myself. But what I'm saying is, this man's going to be very bored. How is he going to, is there going to be conflict? He's going to do his best. He's going to be patronizing towards the parishioners, other ones. And the other thing is, you would never hear, uh, you would never swear. Maybe I'm a bit older and things have changed a great deal since I left Scotland. But you never hear the um, swearing at the priest. Or, you know, using bad language. But you can inform me. I'm, I, that's all I'm asking. I'm, I think the only response I can make to that um, is to say that swearing at priests is a national pastime in Scotland. Uh, maybe it wasn't like that in your day, but somebody was done for a breach of the peace the other day for making a sign of the cross during a football game. Um, I dare say, Eddie, um, there are some great continuities with your time in Scotland and mine. Uh, in fact, I know there are, um, but some things have changed. Let me just address something else you said, uh, and it's about housekeepers. There has not only in, uh, they haven't appeared in British literature, it has to be said much, but in Italian literature you can hardly move for, and in Irish literature for housekeepers or on television. Um, it always seemed to me growing up a particular breed of person who went to work for a priest. They did have piety, certainly. They also had a certain self-denying quality very often. Uh, those of you who know about them, I think we'll, we'll have found that. But what very many of them had, in my experience, was an enormous uh, well of dissatisfaction and ambition for themselves. Um, Mrs. Poole uh, is very far from being an intellectual. Uh, if you continue with the book, you'll see that. But what she does have is this incredible sense of her life having passed her by and having had nobody to talk to. One of the constants in my childhood, and perhaps in yours, was the existence of women in Scotland who had nobody to talk to. Women who wanted to read books, who wanted to do half-decent work, and as Mrs. Poole has, an interesting environment. But there was their husbands uh, found that laughable, ridiculous. Um, and the idea of women, and I knew a great number of them. I used to go to a school that my mother cleaned in when I was growing up to help her uh, take down the chairs um, once she'd done her mopping. And all the women in there um, struck me for having an incredible sense of being trapped into a role uh, for which they didn't even have the language to describe a way out, never mind make towards an exit. So I think I would disagree with you there. I mean, I think Scotland, sometimes I've, I've felt that, not only Scotland, of course, but it's um, uh, in Scotland, masculinity is a nightmare uh, from which women are still trying to awake. And the idea that I would create a character um, who had only to be, um, if you like, a working class stereotype, uh, would be against my instincts. As a writer, I wanted to try and, for the first time, as I had understood it, for the first time in uh, 
a Scottish or a British novel was to try and get to the core of this. This woman's actually got more moral centre than he does, and he's the priest. Um, and that's the kind of drama I like in a novel. Um, but I'm sure there's any number of things that would be inconsistent with what you'd seen yourself. Yeah. Uh, first off, thanks for a really spectacular reading. Really spectacular thanks. reading. It was, it was really... And I was just, I was struck by um, the priest as an adult uh, having a relationship with children and that kind of relationship that adults, like myself in fact, who don't have children mm. can have with children and the sort of fascination children can have. And, 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 but as an adult, because you don't have the experience of bringing them up, you can be very naive about it with no one's relation to them or sort of be fascinated by the, the thing, pieces of life that shine out of them. And I just wondered whether that idea was something that was important to, to you in the book. It was incredibly important. In fact, it was the very beginning for me of the book. Um, I remember hearing the voices of the priest and the children trying to and failing to understand each other at the shaving mirror one morning in the famous houseman-like way where you're supposed to sort of have your moment of clarity. And I did have a moment of clarity about that because I heard not just two registers in two time periods, but two entirely different ways of thinking about life or thinking and not thinking about it. Um, as I said at the beginning, I've always, I've always been a fan of novels which try to take an interest in society um, and rather again novels which ignore it. Um, and it seemed to me that when I, once I started to think about those young people in their relation to somebody like him, you know, this man's deeply flawed. Um, the novel offers a catalogue and a drama about his flaws, but so are they. And sometimes I think we get into such a sort of state of moral equivalence that every, you know, um, we forget that um, there's shading and colour on every side. And I felt responsible about trying to find that. This man will have the most horrible accusations levelled at him. But I want the reader to do the work to discover his humanity. Um, I think what happens in, if you like, in tabloid reports, and I think our nation, our mentality in this country about um, gay priests and so on is completely dominated by the way that the tabloids have chosen to present this. I mean, nobody said so in the coverage of the book so far, but I was, I was hoping that somebody might um, describe this novel as an anti-tabloid novel, because certainly to me that's what it is. Whatever pleasure you're afforded by reading uh, those reports, those rather lascivious, salivating reports in the tabloids about um, paedophiles and so on, about mobs outside ready to kill them, garrote them, uh, do them away. Um, that kind of almost carnival excitement that exists in British society at the moment when it comes to that subject, I wanted to offer a kind of opportunity for readers to contradict that in their own imagination, thoroughly contradict it, contradict it to the very core and see the history of a man like this as being a history of sometimes failed but always evident humanity. And that would also be true of the people in the town too, who have had their losses and suffered their grievous hinterlands, losing industry, losing their way in life. It seemed possible to write a novel that contained all the possibilities for uh, open-mindedness on those fronts. Um, but I remember when I was researching the novel, going to some of those uh, carnival occasions outside the houses of paedophiles or paediatricians or whatever um, they happened to be that day. Um, 
where mobs would gather. Um, and you could have sold ice creams. In fact, uh, at one point I thought somebody was selling ice creams at this. Um, kids were jumping up and taking pictures of this, this dark um, house of Usher with their mobile phones. People had throwaway cameras. The children were being pushed forward to get a better look. The mothers and the um, husbands were in a state of frenzy about the excitement of taking down a man. It was like a form of gladiatorial combat without any of the rules. Um, and I remember watching that on several occasions, not only in Scotland, but elsewhere, um, and once in America, and feeling that there was a story to be told about what had happened to our affections and to our sense um, of uh, the excesses of human feeling, that here's a man twitching, hiding behind a curtain. And in many cases, uh, especially many of those highlighted on the front pages of the British tabloids at the moment, there has been no case, there has been no presentation of evidence, and where there has been a presentation of evidence, there's often a very sad human story to be told, not this brazen, hostile piece of pure barbarity which we confront all the time. So, so the boys and the priest really, when I first conceived of them, I saw them as an opportunity to try and go inside a story and read a story that I hadn't read myself. Sometimes as a writer it's as simple as that. You, you're, you're so hankering to read a book that you have to write it yourself. Anybody else? Could I ask you a question? Please do. Um, uh, when later on in the book um, Father David rejects the advice of um, the bishop to take the easy way out and, and fight um, w with the, the whole of the help of the Roman Catholic Church um, I don't know enough about it if he'd said yes please help me fight this case in court um, what what would have happened how would they have actually dealt with it kind of in inverted commas uh, in many cases um, the, the work would have been so effective that it might never have come to court um, they would have intervened at an earlier stage um, they could certainly um, have presented a kind of PR front. The Catholic Church's crime in all this is that it actually got caught up in a form of ancient PR um, about how to deal with... Uh, they wanted to deal with it themselves, um, and dealing with, them, with themselves is usually moving the priest to another parish, especially if they were talented. Uh, that happened again and again. It happened in Ireland. If you look at the Ferns report that came out, many of you will be familiar with that report on child abuse by priests and uh, brothers in schools in Ireland um, and, and the, uh, the east coast of Ireland and it was devastating to see what came through that report was a real um, collusion between school and church authorities of course in a sense it's easier to understand in a place like Ireland where there had been in those years such a proximity such a union if you like of church and state but it was happening here too this tremendous sense of you know get the priest out and um, I think at some level, though this would never be admitted uh, by the church, and I have pressed them on some of this, I think that they have always secretly and privately, even at the papal level, accepted that one of the aspects of uh, having a calling, having a devotion as a priest, is that you may well have a sexual issue. They wouldn't, they wouldn't include that in their publicity material, <laughs> but they would accept what I'm saying is they would accept if they were speaking about it very honestly and very privately that yes indeed 
many of the young men who came into the priesthood were gay, for example. They would put it like that. And often what we're talking about when we're talking about paedophile priests, my priest is uh, the furthest thing from a paedophile that you can get. He's a paedophile in the same sense. It'd be like call, calling Oscar Wilde a paedophile. He's not interested in sleeping with children. He's a gay man who's been in denial about his desires and the true tra trajectory of his feelings all his life. And this is the moment where he finally is forced and forces himself to confront it. But the idea of paedophile priests, what you're often talking about is gay men who went into the priesthood before they either accepted or knew they were gay. The priesthood offers a very vivid and uh, decent place to hide if you're a gay man in Ireland in the 50s, and indeed if you're a gay man still who doesn't want to follow that life in a public way. Um, and you can't tell me, and neither can the church, that they didn't know that somewhere along the way. They knew it, and they knew it to the extent that they hushed up and dealt with cases all the time. There's a much bigger admission to be made by the church, and it might never be made because it would seem so contrary to sacred thinking. But I think they must always have known that they were, if you like, an attractive harbor for young gay men. And young gay men living a life of duty and um, service uh, often found themselves in close proximity with young men and women in confessional boxes and so on. I don't think the majority of them particularly cared um, about, I mean, they would probably have quite liked to have um, a partner or a sexual relationship with somebody of uh, their own age if they could manage it, but uh, the circumstances really worked uh, in a sense. I don't want to offer them too much of a sort of comprehending thing here because it was a very, you know, it was an abusive responsibility in every way of imagining it, but at the same time, you've got to look at these things humanly and with, a, with an ear for the strangeness of human circumstances. And priests, especially in those years and even yet um, in many countries, are in a zone of pure strangeness, especially if they don't know how to be truthful with themselves. I think part of the question I was trying to ask is what once this thing was on a charge sheet and within the legal system, um, might the Roman Catholic Church have then been complicit with the legal system in trying to get Father David not charged or the charges dropped? And There's all been that some suggestions in France, in Italy, and in Ireland that that was the case that the that. Um, both legal counsel and uh, the judiciary itself were responsive to, as it were, the archbishop ringing them up and having a word in their ear and saying, can we just deal with, it, deal with this ourselves? That happened a lot. I don't think it could quite happen now because there's been such an airing of uh, both the propensity of the Catholic Church to harbor uh, gay priests, gay men, and at the same time, these hideous cases that they find their way onto Newsnight, as indeed they should if they are criminal cases. But I don't think they could have intervened um, in this case, set in 2003. I think what you would have found, I'll come to you in a second, what you would have found is that um, they would have had a word in the ear, perhaps, um, of the local sheriff, but po possibly not now. Um, what, they would have, what they would have done was would they, they would have presented a defending case of Father David saying that he was lonely, that he was going through, he was having a nervous breakdown, that he'd, um, you know, his mother was dying, um, that he had a, you know, hysterical housekeeper, you know, they, they would have done any number of things. Um, 
But that, that, that sort of Italian figure of the Mrs. Poole, the Perpetua, as she exists in Italian literature, um, often became, if you look at these cases, um, in the, look at the actual stories of them, they often became sort of people who were, who's, who were drafted in to the defending of priests who had been accused. But, but to answer your question straightforwardly, no, I, don't, I really don't think that in this case, in this novel, that it would have done for anybody, the Archbishop or anybody else, to whisper in the ears of, of the, the justice because the sheriffs now um, are far too, they've got the public uh, press and the, looking at them when it comes to these cases and they're all, they want to make a show of it very often. Um, no, I was just going to add a, add a thought about Ireland. I can't tell you about the 50s because I wasn't around, but um, I think it's, it's fair to say uh, that, there, uh, that there was a, an, an enormous shift um, over Ireland in the 60s, 70s, and the attitudes of, towards the church and the, and the priesthood and, and what you'd find now. And I think what you're saying about maybe even the church itself articulating that the people, the, the men who were coming to them who converted commas had a vocation, might have had a, sort of a special relationship with sex. I think that yeah. might be happening. But I think if you go further back, um, there's two things are very striking, and so my sense of it is there's absolutely no criticism that could be broached at the Catholic Church. It just oh, yeah. was beyond the pale for anyone. Yeah, I mean, the, right. there was there was one TD, in fact, you know, and one TD who was kind of known as an atheist. You know, whispered amongst yourselves, you know, mm. and uh, but would, by virtue of that rumor that he was an atheist going around, never address the issue of the Catholic mm. Church. So, so is that thing in a sense? I don't think they really have to articulate it very much. They were just mm. literally beyond criticism. You know? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I was reminded of how things had moved in a rather comic way the other day. I was during the Edinburgh Festival and when I'd finished I was going off to meet some people and I walked down through Charlotte Square and some man sort of swung and grabbed me by the arm and said, are you Andrew Hagen? I said, guilty. And he said, um, I just want you to know that the Cardinal's reading your novel. <laughs> and I said, right. And, and, and he looked at me, there's a wonderful story of uh, Steve Martins where somebody uh, forces their feet into uh, shoes with nails and razor blades in them and then they stand up and say I like them um, and he said he likes it <laughs> I, don't, I wasn't sure later whether that had made or spoiled my day I'm still working on that one I, I want to ask you something um, that um, that's quite light that's in the middle of this book which I've really thoroughly enjoyed and that's the elephant um, yes. you bring it this it's the most wonderful story and I enjoyed every every word of it, especially since I grew up among elephant. And so I want to ask you, therefore, because um, you say something beautiful about the working class, I've just got the page here, uh, that at that stage that the um, working class had no very obvious sense of spite or entitlement. And I, want, I just wondered whether the elephant was just a story, or that's something you'd seen or heard, or whether it carries any bigger significance well, thank in, you for in that. the story. Um, uh, I have a number of fantasies, um, and one of them is that instead of you know having spent my childhood running about um, talking nonsense and eating too many crisps, um, <laughs> that I'd actually uh, climbed on the back of an elephant and gone you know walking through my school sort of with feathers coming off the back of it and being you know maybe it's the Shirley Bassey influence I don't know, but there certainly uh, are moments as a fiction writer when you get to indulge something it's just a pure fantasy, and the moment where Billy Smart Circus happens to be in York, and this schoolboy persuades his rather sort of enlightened, not to say imaginative mother, to let him. For those who haven't read the book yet, I won't spoil it, but there is a. Um, this school, he goes to Ampleforth, um, 
there's a tradition there called Gormire Day, where all the kids in the school have got to get to the Gormire Bank, which is um, a number of miles away, by any conveyance possible. And there's stories of clever schoolboys getting milk floats and going in the backs of donkeys, and so most of them go on their bikes. But um, there's always been this, uh, these great stories of people. So he gets his mother to hire an elephant from Billy Smart Circus and goes there that way, and it causes an enormous excitement in the school. Um, I think how I actually came by the business of it being possible was uh, I read the memoirs of Billy Smart Research um, and discovered that they would hire out the animals for special occasions um, and for school parties. And at that point I thought, I know how I could make this uh, go somewhere. Um, so the elephant, I did much more research on that, I have to tell you, than was necessary. I mean, I spent weeks researching elephants. Could they walk that far? Would they need a drink? Would they poo everywhere? You know, would the mother go nuts? You know, would it be allowed? Would the RSPCC? You know, it was lots of that. Um, PCA, I should say, and uh, PCC, um, <laughs> allow this sort of thing. And it turned out that it could be done, so uh, it was a piece of pure fictioning on my part. I've never yet got on the back of one but maybe you've inspired me. When I was reading the book, I was just very aware of how often you mentioned the young people as young people mm -hmm. rather than boys and girls. I assume that's deliberate, but yeah. I just felt that it was indicative of, of the passing of time. Is that what you meant? Or? It was part of that, but also um, I wanted the reader to... There's some things that you want to... The reason they take three or four years to write these things is because you want at some level to... Um, you need to train the reader how to, how to read your book. You need to offer them opportunities um, to understand things that, if you like, they're not supposed to understand at this point in the book. You create a sort of undertow in a novel, a kind of sub, a subconscious undertow, uh, which acts, you would hope, on the reader's imagination, on the intelligent reader's thoughts, all the while, long before you've said anything, long before you've averred to his sexuality or his difficulty with his past or his um, dramatic conclusion to his story, you want to have created a kind of ripple effect under the water that's bringing truth and difficulty and questions to your reader. It's a kind of, it's a thing that poets often describe, you know, creating a sort of almost the language of the poetry, if you like, the consonants, the space between the lines, creating a sort of pressure in the reader, the good reader's mind, that, um, that kind of eddies them forth into the story. And by saying things like young people, I wanted to indicate, and that's, that's, that's one of the ways, that from the very beginning I wanted him to find it difficult to say man or woman, because, or girl or boy, I should say, because he's essentially um, somebody who would love there to be no definitions of that sort, no sexual definitions at all of distinctions. He's, he's troubled by the idea of um, being attracted to men and um, he starts to do it in his language long before you learn he's like that. Um, if you, and that's what I'd worked for, you know, as a kind of creating a sort of momentum that isn't obvious, a kind of subconscious momentum, and that's how you do it, in my view, is just by paying attention to every bit of language and seeing the opportunities where they exist to give the reader a hint. Yes. Um, one of the sources of the richness of this book, it seems to me, is that there are so many oppositions in it. You've got uh, English against Scottish, you've got Protestant against Catholic, 
you've got youth against age, you've got culture against Philistinism and so on. Um, and these all swirl around and they inform each other and they make a wonderful rich stew. When you were starting this out, to what extent were you aware of all these oppositions or did they, did you set out to um, anatomize them or did they simply come to you as you were writing? Well, I have to say in all honesty that um, I've always taken those oppositions for granted. Um, I probably exhibit some of them myself, um, but the thing is that I grew up in circumstances, and I don't think my circumstances, in fact, I had, I had so much fun among the sort of wreckage of childhood that um, I've just taken it for granted that opposition and uh, kind of divisiveness was a feature. I'm not saying it's an especially Scottish feature either. I'm sure if you grew up in Montenegro, you'd be able to speak of something more grave but similar. But certainly, I always take to opposition. My, I mean, if Freud's right and all of this sort of society starts in one's family, then I found it there. I found very profound opposition, uh, not just in the sense that people threw crockery at each other, although they did. Um, in a sense, um, what was possible... I spoke before about Mrs. Poole and her world. I mean, what's possible for somebody like Mrs. Poole, um, who has no education and had children and get caught up in a sort of a fantasy of, sort of um, male masochistic success, too young, when in fact... She has been silenced. And that kind of opposition, I think I started to witness, if I'm not doing myself too much justice, at an embarrassingly young age. I was almost looking between, you know, around my mother's legs, uh, witnessing the way that my mother's attempt to have, to stake a claim on the world was, was made impossible, whereas my father's wasn't, for example. That kind of divisiveness, oppositionalism, and then of course the Celtic and Rangers thing. I mean, Scotland is particularly divisive in that way, I have to say. I'm not going to dodge the bullet on that, much as um, it is a bullet, because many people would prefer that one didn't say that. Um, but it has been a divisive country, highland, lowland, mainlander, islander, Gaelic, non-Gaelic, man, woman. Um, it goes on and on in Scotland. It's entered the leisure world, the sports world, at an early stage too. So. People define themselves by their distinctions all the time. What they're not. When you, I remember when you first used to go out with people when I was a kid. People would, you know, you'd bring a girl into the house, and your mother and father would say to you, or say to her, "What school do you go to?" Which is a way in Scotland of saying, "Are you a Catholic or a Protestant?" Because if they were Catholics, they'd have gone to St Bridget's or St Aloysius or St Mark's. But if she said, "Oh, Ravens Park Academy," my mother's eyes would sort of. You know, it's just a sense always of opposition of of outsiderism and perhaps we were the outsiders all the time but um, I don't think I've ever as a writer had to sit down and think now what were the thematically what were the oppositions did you see they sort of bleed into the language for me was sort of everywhere and not just as I say in Scotland because when I went to the conventions for the London Review both the Republican uh, National Convention and the Democrat I felt that America perhaps even more than what I'd known as a, as a child, was a place of pure, ripe oppositionalism, where you were either for us or against us, as George Bush said, you're either with the terrorists or you're with us. That's the way the thinking, and I've always thought that was so extremely vulgar in Philistine, again from a very young age, that, and I found it vulgar in novels sometimes too, I sometimes found it vulgar in E.M. Um, e. Forster, for example, although it broke down and he was a magical writer when he managed to break it down, but not always. 
But but in America, I came away with the feeling the last time that it was maybe, in a sense, it's one of the things that Scotland was ahead of the world on, was deep oppositionalism on everything. And um, if if novelists can sort of, in a sense, interrupt um, the free flow of those divisions and the free flow of you know between those poles and actually slightly twist the poles away, um, then I would be happy about that. I think I think the writers I, I have liked in my life have to some extent done that. This lady's asked a question about Northern Ireland, about the six counties, um, about why those uh, oppositions uh, have become, as it were, a matter of warfare there, but never uh, on in Scotland. My answer to that. Um, will be partial because the, the, the Scottish West Coast experience was mine and, and, and I've set these three books. I see these three, three novels, Our Father's Personality and now this final one, Be Near Me, uh, as a sort of trilogy about what happened in the West Coast of Scotland in terms of politics and faith and sexuality and certain freedoms in the post-Thatcher period. Um, that was always in my mind. I'd hope if I, if I thought if I can just write three novels, then I'll leave it alone for a long time, and it will be quite a long time before I write a contemporary Scottish novel again. The next novel set in 1820, um, and there's an American book to come after that. I, I just feel that one of the things that had I'd, had never been defined for me as a reader, and I'd wanted to make a small contribution to understanding, was this business of Scotland having a cultural fight similar to Northern Ireland's but no territorial one. So it's actually, in some senses, if you look at it from a certain slant, worse in Scotland that it's just pure hatred. It's not, it's not to do with land, it's not to do with rights, it's not even to do particularly with history because, as I discovered one time for more purposes, um, I went on an orange march and I asked every second person who passed me who was screaming songs about the Battle of the Boyne if they could just tell me very, very quickly into my tape recorder what happened at the Battle of the Boyne. Not one of them could. Not one of them over eight hours at an orange march could actually describe. They do shout 1690 um, and things like that. And that is an experience. Um, of, I mean, whatever idiocies exist in Northern Ireland, and there's, there's any number of them, there is something they're fighting about. There is, there is both a cultural and a territorial question there. Um, and much as we might hate in a religious one, of course. It's, it's, it's an endlessly complicated, but it has traction and is moving forward. That will, in our lifetimes, I think, be resolved. Well, I remember Bill Clinton, who it seems to me that uh, when he spoke it um, in, in Britain, he did seem to me to be the most intellectually fluent person I've ever met, uh, heard, I should say. Um, and what he said was that, um, I remember him saying that the Middle East, in the Middle East, there is no traction to the, to, to the negotiations, that actually it's like, trying to climb up a, a, a greasy wall. There's nothing there. There's no nooks. There's no spaces. There's nowhere to put your foot. They hate, they hate, they hate, they hate. And there's no... Whereas Northern Ireland, it's all traction. I mean, there's pockets of pure resistance. You know, there's red hands and there's explosives and there's people. But basically, once you've got that sort of traction, it's moving. People are climbing over the wall and climbing over the wall and climbing over the wall. It's done. Whereas... And there is... I've always had a certain amount of respect for that, um, for people, revisionists, if you like, historical revisionists, who tried to tolerate the idea that bombing people out of their houses wasn't the answer, and that there was a real conflict, a real constitutional and religious conflict in Northern Ireland. The hurtful thing for me was to, uh, and for 
on behalf of, as it were, a generation, several generations in the west coast of Scotland, was that we were mired in a conflict that wasn't a conflict. It was just an opportunity for hatred. Whatever happened in Ireland would have had no effect on what life was like in the west coast of Scotland, unless you count a certain kind of um, hubris or schadenfreude or whatever as, as, as an achievement. It wouldn't have changed anything. And I, I went to a denominational school. I went to a Catholic school. Many of my friends went to Protestant schools. There was a lot of talk about orange walks, and there was orange walks through the town. There was a lot of talk about um, divisions between Catholics and Protestants. I grew up wondering what the difference between us was, and it was all pure nonsense. It was a way of living a life uh, where somehow several generations um, of well-meaning and well-thinking Scottish people had allowed a situation to develop where they'd imported entirely um, ferocious and obnoxious debates over which they didn't really care or about which they didn't really care. It was another way of saying I'm this rather than that and so it never caught on in Scotland because in fact it doesn't mean anything in Scotland except oh my granny was right up Sinn Féin you know or you know the songs I've been singing for years great it's all come. They'd actually fall asleep with boredom if, it's, if it was resolved tomorrow because you know it's been a kind of perpetuating, uh, self-perpetuating thing this in, in Scotland, and it's one of the most hideous features—a sort of live bigotry that's about nothing. It's centerless. Yeah, I mean, it, I've just, it's just been said that, um, of course, I'm taking it for granted that people understand that on that west coast uh, and beyond, but mainly on that west coast, many of the people who are there who are, you know, have had children and they're all Scottish and so on actually came to Scotland from those troubles, from uh, Ireland, uh, you know, in the potato farming. My own ancestors came uh, in the 18, late 1840s. They either went to America um, or they came to uh, Irvine Newtown. Um, I'll leave that up to you to decide who got the better deal. Uh, but let me just say something before we, we go, which is that, um, please, I know that some of you have got the book here tonight, and it um, doesn't matter to me personally, but this is an independent bookshop. If any of you are thinking of buying the book or have a Christmas present, buy it here, because this shop needs the support, and it means a lot to me. If you enjoyed the reading tonight, please do that. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.